testing. Some people came of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, 
He is possessed, sorry, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven for all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Thanks, Nicole. There's a... I'll grab that from you. Thank you, thank you. It's a long reading, but gee, it's good, isn't it? And friends, um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're, we're enjoying some really big, uh, chunky passages here in Mark's Gospel, and just uh, want to give you an encouragement to have a physical paper Bible, I know it's old school, in front of you um, as we do this, because I think it's tremendously helpful that we're able to see how, how, how these particular episodes and paragraphs kind of fit together. If you don't have one with you today, there's, there's, there's no judgment here, there's no criticism, but just an encouragement that I think we'll find that helpful. If you want to grab a little a copy of Mark's Gospel, you see a few of them floating around here. We do have them down at the, the back table and feel free uh, to do so either for yourself or to pass on to others. Look, as we, as we dive in today, um, I've called uh, today's sermon, as we hear about the good news of Jesus, that, that he came to end religion. And at, at, we'll see why that is as we dig into this, but I just, it was getting me thinking about the, the census. You know the government census that, that comes around and came around fairly recently and there's the little box that you've got to tick in there are you religious? And there's a whole bunch of follow-on questions from that. Well, I ticked yes, because I'm a Christian. And in the census terms, that fits their definition of being religious, right? But as we'll see today, in many ways, anyone who is a Christian should tick no, because Jesus came to end religion. Let me unpack that. We've got a little bit of an outline just to help us to see where we're going. Three points as it will come up as we progress. The first point, we're looking at that um, passage from 18 to 22, a bit of a Q&A with Jesus, verse 18 to 22 of chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel. You see, Mark's just been highlighting for us that Jesus was hanging out with some very non-religious people. If you scan your eye back to the paragraph before it, he was hanging out with a whole bunch of sinners and tax collectors. Mark says it three times in one paragraph, sinners and tax collectors. And this got the attention of some very religious folk. The Pharisees, who are the teachers of the law. And so as Mark keeps probing us with his core question, who is Jesus? He draws us to to attention to a couple of these question and answer sessions that took place between Jesus and these religious types. To help us to see that Jesus is the one who came to end religion. So verse 18, we get a little bit of context. We've got the religious people doing religious things. They're fasting, right? And then there's a question that follows, why don't, why don't your disciples 
fast? And the answer Jesus gives is a little perplexing. The bridegroom is here, but he's going to be taken away. Now, at one level, Jesus is making a very simple point from normal life. He's drawing a comparison with a wedding celebration. And when you've been invited to a wedding, you don't fast at the wedding feast. That'd just be bonkers and a little bit rude. You feast. When it's time to celebrate, you celebrate. And so with a very simple comparison from normal life, Jesus is making the point that it makes perfect sense that his disciples, they're celebrating because he's, he's here, he's with them. But he's actually saying something deeper than that too to these religious types because to describe himself as the bridegroom gives Jesus the opportunity to point to something much bigger than just everyday life. Who is Jesus is the question we're asking. He is the bridegroom. And in a number of the Old Testament prophets, God describes himself as the groom and his people Israel as the bride. The whole book of Hosea, for example, if you're taking notes, jot down Hosea. The whole book of Hosea is based on the metaphor of God as the groom and his people as the bride. It's an image that the prophet Isaiah uses a lot to describe God's passionate, faithful love of his people. So on a deeper level... Jesus is underlying the point for those who will hear it. He's God who's come amongst us. And I think that helps us to make sense of a jarring comment there in verse 20, where Jesus pictures these wedding celebrations being, what's happening there? They've, they've been interrupted. The groom's been taken away. That doesn't happen. But Jesus knows what's going to happen. The image of God himself and how people respond because he knows that many will reject him as the bridegroom. And we've read on, we've read to the end of this passage, chapter 3, verse 6, we saw that actually these religious types, they, they are the plans that they start to make, plotting for Jesus' death. We've got a Q&A here. Jesus was asked a simple question, why aren't your disciples fasting? But his answer wasn't just around that one religious custom. He answered by making a really bold statement about himself. And then he throws in some pretty strange statements about patches on clothing and wine for wineskins and things. What is going on here? Well, again, I think the context of ordinary life helps us to make sense of this. Can you throw up for us, Alio, the picture that we've got here? Because in an age of screw-top wine bottles, wine was kept in wineskins made of leather, uh, a kind of leather bag for your wine. But you needed to put new wine into a new bag because the final stages of fermentation would expand the skins and only a new skin would have the flexibility to accommodate, to stretch and expand with the new wine. This is before the age of, you know, climate-controlled, highly measured, fully tech wine production, right? You'd be a fool to put new wine into an old wine skin that is already stiffened and cannot expand. Jesus is simply using an everyday image of his time to talk about the incompatibility with, with the old way. Don't bother reusing old wineskins because they and the wine will be spoiled. And in the same way, don't, don't bother patching an old garment with a new fabric because the band-aid effort, it'll be futile. And this is what it means for the bridegroom to have come. Jesus is saying it's something new. There's something really big going on. He's been asked a simple question, why aren't you guys fasting? And he's saying, because something's changed. And so, as we're about to see, this isn't just about the question of fasting. 
This isn't just about a particular practice that the religious types were interested in. This is actually Jesus continuing to probe us with who he is. He's the bridegroom, come. He's God himself, come to be with his people, the bride. And things will need to change. He simply cannot be patched onto the old way of doing things. He cannot be forced into the old way of doing things. Much more than just fasting, in what we've read on, Mark is about to help us to see that Jesus is totally incompatible with religion. Thanks, Elia. Who is Jesus? He's the one that came to end religion. We can just go to the blank slide there, mate, the, 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 the outline that we've got to follow. Because point two, we're reading on why Jesus came to end religion. We've got a couple of paragraphs interrupted by a chapter break, one of the downsides of reading off your phone. Sometimes you've got to step out of chapter two to get into chapter three. But on the page, we see that actually Mark now gives us a little bit more Q&A around the question of the Sabbath. Because if if Jesus has come to change things, and I'm making the bold claim that he's come to end religion, it, it begs the question, what's wrong with religion? And I think Mark gives us a really profound summary of this. Jesus, in his own words, gives us the profound summary. The religion kills, but Jesus saves. To put it bluntly, what's wrong with religion? Religion kills, but Jesus saves. That's what's going on in this next couple of Q&A sessions that relate to the religious custom of the Sabbath. They unpack this for us. I think for many of us, we struggle to appreciate the significance of what's going on here. We just don't understand why Sabbath is that big a deal. Some of us don't even know that Sunday isn't technically the Sabbath. Saturday. Well, one commentator I read summed it up well. And if someone else has given you a good paragraph, we might as well read it instead of me trying to come up with it myself. Most of the world's religions venerate sacred places. Islam honours Mecca, Hinduism, the Ganges River, and Shintoism, the island of Japan. Judaism also venerated Jerusalem, and especially the temple as sacred space. But it venerated something beyond it, and perhaps even above it. Time. The Sabbath. That's the significance of what's going on here. Not just the most holy place, but in a sense, this is a discussion about one of the highest, most sacred demonstrations of what it meant to be Jewish people, what it meant to be God's people. And so when Mark takes us to Jesus, engaging with religious types about the Sabbath, he is going for the jugular of how people thought about religion in total. And we've got two rounds of Q&A to kind of build the picture for us. So the first case study on the Sabbath, it begins here in chapter 2, verse 23, well, the religious leaders, they're observing things again, aren't they? They're observing Jesus' disciples collecting grain as they walk through the grain fields. And God's word in the Old Testament had been clear that the Sabbath was intended for people to rest from their work, to celebrate the ultimate rest that God promised. But religion does strange things in the human heart and mind. And our natural inclination when we're given a rule is to constantly test the boundaries. Instead of taking the clear intent of it, the spirit of it, to focus on God's provision for us rather than our self-sufficiency, God is clear, that's what Sabbath was about. We focus, the natural human question that then follows when God tells us to rest from our work is, you're probably thinking it, yeah, so what's work? How far can I go? What boundary can I push? And so over hundreds of years, the teachers of the law 
the religious types had defined these terms very specifically. And by their definition, walking through your neighbour's paddock and picking grain was deemed to be work. So to be clear, the the Q&A that's going on here, this isn't a discussion about whether Sabbath is a good thing or not. It's really about how it should be defined and observed. And did you notice that Jesus keeps giving kind of curveball, indirect answers? He doesn't answer them by debating kind of the details of religious Sabbath observance. Verse 25, he takes them to a story from the Old Testament, uh, the book of 1 Samuel, talking about King David, a particular episode. What's helpful for us is to remember King David is the first Messiah with a small m, God's anointed king. And Jesus uses this story to show that God's Messiah has always had the authority to show how God's law should be applied. Because, well, Jesus pointed to a story that they knew, even if we don't, they knew that they could see that, well, David, he could determine what was in the spirit of the law regarding consecrated bread in the tabernacle, nothing particularly to do with the Sabbath. But Jesus' point is that the Messiah can claim an authority to determine what is appropriate to do under the law, under the spirit of the law of the Sabbath. Because on verse 27 he says, the Sabbath was made as a gift for man to teach humanity of who God is and and who we are in relationship to him. Sabbath was made for the good of man, not man made for the fulfilment of Sabbath. And this is why religion kills. Because religion says that Sabbath is a burden placed over people. Religion says that we need to obey certain laws to be right with God, and and that by obeying them, by obeying them completely, we will indeed be right with God. For the visually inclined, Alio, skip a couple of slides, we've got a picture of a mountain climb. Religion is like climbing a mountain with the promise of finding God at the top. We work our way up through enough good deeds and careful observance of the right rituals and that can sound hopeful that there could be a way that through enough religious obedience we could be right with God. Now I want to confess and I need you to believe me when I confess that I know what that feels like. I'm sure we all do. What it feels like to reflect on a good deed that I've done and to feel like somehow that's elevated me in God's sight, his opinion of me has just notched up because of the good deed that I've done. And then, of course, the ugly side of the same coin, that as I reflect on my good deed, I'm inclined to look down on those who I think are well, perhaps just a little bit less passionate, a bit less devout. And that's the deadly trap of religion right there the hope that i can climb the mountain because it's an empty hope from the beginning of scripture god has made it clear that we can never make it because in his perfection god can never be attained by imperfect creatures on our own however hard we apply ourselves to it and the pharisees obsession with constantly defining and clarifying just what what was and what was not okay, kind of illustrated the point. Because there would always need to be another rule, another, another way to make sure that we don't break the law because you can't legislate for the heart. And it's a mountain that we cannot climb. This is why religion kills. And I've seen this lived out in a really painful way. 
As a first year uni student, I lived at Lincoln College in North Adelaide with a couple of hundred other uni students. It was great fun, but let's be honest, you put a couple of hundred uni students together in the same place and it was a pretty challenging place to work out what it meant to live as a Christian in the midst of a pretty wild party culture. And I remember Ben really clearly. Like me, Ben had, ben had grown up in a Christian family. Like me, Ben was part of the Bible study that we ran on Tuesday nights. But Ben was totally burdened by religion. In the face of the various lifestyle choices that were on offer, I remember the pain in his voice and the tears in his eyes as he wrestled with his inability to, to follow all the rules that he'd been told that he was required to climb the mountain. He said, I just can't do it anymore. Simon, I just can't, I just can't be a good enough Christian. I just can't do it. And so he didn't. And from that night on, Ben chose a different path. To be clear, he didn't end his life. But he chose, he chose a path that freed him of the burden of religion by turning his back on God entirely. You see, other people had so obscured the grace of God in Jesus that he thought his only option was to simply turn his back on Jesus. Religion kills because it, it puts an impossible mountain in front of us that is based on the lie that somehow if we grit our teeth and will ourselves, we can make it to the top and be right with God. But that will only and always end in disaster. Religion kills, but Jesus gives life. And friends, if that feels a bit blunt, a bit harsh, then we actually need to see kind of the passion with which Jesus spoke in the next round of Q&A uh, that we see at the start of chapter 3. So turn with, uh, with me to, to chapter 3, verse 1. Ali, you can... Yeah, thanks very much, mate. And we see that, that Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's teaching in the synagogue. And from what Mark has told us in chapter 1, Jesus is almost certainly explaining what it means that the kingdom of God has come near, that, that what it means to repent and believe the good news. That's what Jesus was on about. He's not teaching a message of free, free love and do what you like. He's calling people to repent. And we're told in verse 2 that it happens to be the Sabbath and that there happens to be a, a man with a shriveled hand, a, a disability of some sort there. And Jesus' point is simple. He knows that in the mindset of the religious folk there that, that they'll have some fine print statement about what is and is not permissible to be done in healing someone on a Sabbath. Uh, archaeologists have unearthed all sorts of... Um, uh, laws and, and, and texts outside of the Bible from this day and age that kind of set this out. You know, the urgent assistance was okay if someone needed urgent life-saving help. But only until the patient was stable and then you had to wait until Sabbath was cleared and you continued to help them the following day, which, of course, then begs the question, how urgent is urgent enough and how stable is stable enough? You see where religion goes with this. And so this time, it's Jesus asking the question in verse 4... Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? You see, Jesus is pointing them to the purpose of Sabbath, to the purpose of the law. It wasn't to make us right with God, but to point us to the life that God promised in himself. 
In their stubborn hearts, the religious types had turned the rules into their God. And so when they remain silent, Jesus openly confronts them. But not with a word. It's just with a simple demonstration of his power. And this is so clever because technically they can't get him on breaking the law, right? Because he didn't do anything. Just asked a man to stretch out his hand. But the point is made. Yes, he's been at work. Giving life. Restoring health. Pointing people toward the ultimate Sabbath and the rest with God. And they are furious. They are so outraged that they begin to plot how they might kill Jesus. This is the conflict that's introduced. At this point in, in Mark's gospel, Mark hasn't sort of said to us that he's, he's preaching us to us the, the gospel of God's grace through faith in Jesus, our forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death on the cross. That's still to come. But at this point, Mark is showing us that when Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God came, he came to end religion and the religious types knew it. Jesus came to point to a different way to relationship with God that is not based on our hopeless inability to obey with absolute perfection. See, this is Jesus showing that he has the power to forgive sins. We saw that last week. That he has the power to bring life. That he has the power to do what religion could never do. To bring God's blessing. And as he often does, Mark uses the example of someone who met Jesus to prompt us to consider our response. Because the scenario for the man, just think about this from his perspective. The man with the shriveled hand was in a tricky position, wasn't he? I mean, here he was, quietly sitting at the back of synagogue, looking to be encouraged from God's word. And then suddenly he is brought into the centre of attention and the, and the focus of a brewing conflict. The tension in the room must have just been thick. Through no fault of his own, he's become the focal point about a fight about one of the most precious religious elements in all of Judaism. Verse 3, Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. The spotlight is right on him. Verse 5, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. Ponder his mind at that point. He could keep it by his side. He could wait for the floor to open up and swallow him. He could kind of look at the revered religious leaders and, and silently beg them with his eyes to intervene so that he could politely take his seat, please. And verse 5. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Mark takes us to this man to introduce us to faith demonstrated without even a word. He simply took Jesus at his word. And Jesus came to bring life and his life is received simply by believing that he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. We bring nothing to the table. We're simply called to lean into that truth. I think that's a nice way of saying what it means to repent and believe. To lean into the truth that Jesus is God's King, God's Son, who brings all the blessings of God's kingdom. And then the remainder of what we read, well, it gives us our third point. This is going to be much quicker as we run through this because first we've seen Jesus came to end religion. 
Second, we've seen that religion kills, but Jesus brings life. Well, thirdly, when you end religion, this totally changes who is in and who is out. Because we see Jesus begin to create a new community defined by the news of who he is. So to run through it, cast your eyes over it if you've got it there in front of you. We see from chapter 3, verse 7, unsurprisingly, Jesus is wrestling with his popularity with the crowds again. Everyone wants a piece of this, this wonder-working healer, but he knows what he's on about, to preach. In his compassion, he came to make known that he is there with the kingdom of God. And so instead of simply allowing the crowds to overwhelm him, in verse 13, he withdraws to the mountainous wilderness and he calls to himself his, his inner crowd, 12 men to reflect the 12 tribes of Israel, the men whom he would teach that in turn they might teach, that in turn the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God could be spread because that is what Jesus came to do. But while some were answering the call to follow, as those 12 illustrated, the chapter closes with this really confronting kind of interplay as we see just how confronting it is for Jesus to upend an entire religious and social structure because ending religion offends people. So in verse 20, his family, they're embarrassed. <laughs> they want to intervene. In verse 22, we see why they're embarrassed because the teachers of the law, they've started throwing mud. He's possessed by Beelzebul. That's a name for Satan, the devil. It's a little bit like how in Hogwarts you're never supposed to mention the name of Voldemort, you know, he who must not be named. Here he is, Beelzebul. Let's not talk about him, it's a bit scary. Jesus, let me tell you about Satan. He's done. But even then, Jesus highlights how profound his claims about himself are because he actually has the one to have the power to overthrow Satan. Because he, he is the one who comes with the Holy Spirit himself. And then all of this concludes with a really important statement by Jesus. As he redefines who the people of God are. When he's told in verse 32 that his mother and his brothers have arrived, verse 34, Jesus looked at the circle of the people around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And in that one sentence, I think he drops a bombshell. I kind of wonder whether the room would have just gone to deathly quiet as, as everyone caught their breath and wondered, did he actually really say that? And probably soon after that, it exploded with a whole mix of kind of outrage and surprise and surely he didn't just say that. And the teenagers are there going, I am totally tweeting this immediately because that was sick. Because I think, like we struggle to understand the significance of what Jesus said about Sabbath. We struggle to understand the significance of what Jesus has just said about family. Because Jesus is making a radical statement about who his family is, who's in with him. It's not those who are born in. It's not those who are counted in on the basis of some social convention. It's not even his earthly family, his mother and brothers. Jesus makes the incredibly confronting statement that something else will define his family. You cannot claim Jesus because you were born into a Christian family. Not even his own family could claim Jesus on that basis. You need relationship with him. 
And so in one short chapter, Jesus says, he's put a bomb under the two things that the Jewish people held on to as, as the definition of their religion, their relationship with God, their claim upon him. First, their religious observance of the law of God. And second, their family line as members of the descendants of Abraham. And no, says Jesus, none of that makes you in. His family will be defined by those who do God's will. Which could sound like a very religious statement, couldn't it? You just need to do the right things. Except if we remember, as Mark wants us to, all the way through his gospel, if we remember what Jesus was preaching, it was there in chapter 1, verse 15, if you want to flick back to it. Jesus preached, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The message wasn't some ad for another religious system. Ditch that one. Come and join my cult. The message was the news of Jesus himself. And the response wasn't just to take a slight left turn divergence from the way you've been doing things. When Jesus talks about repentance, it's an image of 180 degrees, a total turnaround. I've been reading through the prophet Jeremiah in my own quiet time and turn, turn, turn is his constant refrain. 180 degrees. Because Jesus came for us to believe the news that this is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as Mark sums him up. God come to us. God come for us. To return to that impossible mountain, God has come down the mountain that we could never climb ourselves. He's come down to us to lift us up to him. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And faith was leaning into the claim that Jesus says, he is who he is. Repent and believe the good news. That is what will define Jesus' family. And friends, as we finish, I think if that's what Jesus said would define his family, that's what should define us as a family too. As a church, we're people who, we're not caught up in the pretense of religion, the false hope of our ability to, to present a false facade of getting everything right and ticking all of the boxes and climbing the mountain. Instead, as a church, we're a people of repentance and faith. That's what we've got to be about. It's what we're here to help each other in to help each other see our self-righteous attempts to parade our good works and, and to lift ourselves up the mountain and gently, gently point it out. To help each other wrestle with all of those things that we might be tempted to turn to other than Jesus as God's son, his king. We need to be people who are about helping each other see the, the idols that we don't even realise that we are looking to for the hope and the security that only Jesus can offer. That's who we are to be. That's why we want to invite other people to join us. Not because we're great, but because we want to repent and believe the good news. That Jesus came to end religion. That he came to invite us, all of us, sinners and tax collectors. He came to invite us, not because we're righteous, but because he knows that we're not. He came to save us because he knows that we can't save ourselves. So let's pray.
Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he knows the mountain that we cannot climb and that he came down to us to lift us up to be with you. Father, help us to be people that lean into that great truth, to be people who daily repent and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.